From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Here is just the headline that just basically writes itself. (laughs) Goldman boosts Solomon's pay 24% after firm's profit slumps 24%. I mean... Only on Wall Street pay for performance. When I saw that headline, I figured it has to be the work of Sri Natarajan because he covers Goldman Sachs like no one else out there. And we're kind of to get a few minutes uh, from Sri Natarajan, Bloomberg News. So Sri, Goldman Sachs boosted David Solomon, CEO, his compensation 24% to an even $31 million, good for him, for a year when earnings slumped at the Wall Street giant. What's the story behind this? It's, it's interesting, right? Because for years we, we've always heard and we always keep hearing that it's a pay-for-performance culture on Wall Street. Uh, but it is fascinating how some of these numbers come together. It's not science. It's always art. Uh, you know, sometimes you look at what happened in the year. Sometimes you look at what happens in, 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 the, in the forward. Goldman's compensation committee, the board said, there were a lot of strategic changes that were made in 2023. That is true. Solomon had initially leaned in on his retail banking aspirations for the Wall Street giant, then tried to unwind it and spend much of the last year focused on that, so that they're well set up for 2024 and beyond on a strategy that resembles the Goldman Sachs we've known for the last 20, 25 years. The board is saying that means he deserves a big raise. The number is... A bit poetic, a 24% jump when the profit is down 24%. <laughs> to just go uh, back and do what they did that. 24 years ago. If we just go to that. So it's getting a 24% uh, increase to do what they did decades ago. Um, how do we think people inside the bank feel about this? I had been talking to a number of people even before the filing hit, and everyone was laser-focused on what the number was likely to be. Remember, he took a near 30% cut last year when his pay was down to $25 million. That sounds like severe punishment, but that year, profit was also down significantly in the 40s. Everyone this year was focused and interested to see if he'll actually hit the $30 million mark again, because it is fair to say across the top ranks of Goldman Sachs, most people did not get a 25% jump. Their pay did not increase by a quarter. So they were focused on this. And one of the interesting parts is last year, the pay announcement was made in January. Goldman has this habit of gathering its roughly 400 or so partners, the top rank of the firm for this annual offsite. They've been doing it in Miami for the last couple of years. Sure. And last year, it came out in January before uh, the pay disclosure came out before that meeting. This year, the pay disclosure was made after that annual offset, which is interesting <laughs> in itself. You know, I'm just trying to look for a, a benchmark comparison here, and I'm just looking at the Bloomberg terminal for Jamie Dimon. And what we have disclosed is his 2022 compensation was a total of about uh, 
eight uh, cash and non-cash. The stock has actually gone up since then, so the pay package has gone up. But just on the mar- just on the margin for 2022, uh, 32.8. So just to give you a benchmark of Solomon, it's right in line with what I would argue up here would be right um, it, 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 or, or more even Morgan Stanley and James Gorman so and James Gorman comes in even higher at 37 about 37 million, million. Yeah. It, it was James Gorman's last year so some of the boats thinking there was performance for package. 2023 but also a little bit of a go away package but remember Morgan <laughs> Stanley also had a pretty tough year uh, the thing that does stand out about Solomon's pay is that the, the jump in pay that percentage jump is bigger than any other major US bank peer Oh, I'm sorry. You actually have it in your reporting. So we have the latest data. So last month, J.P. Morgan Chase said it awarded longtime CEO Jamie Dimon $36 million for the year, up 4.3% from the year earlier. Morgan Stanley increased. James Gorman's paid it uh, 17% to $37 million. So that you've got the, the most recent numbers. I guess, I don't know. I mean, what's the feeling for Mr. Solomon, his position within the firm? It, it seems Much more better ten- now. I don't know. It seems more tenuous than... <laughs> Say, like, at any time for Blankfein or any time before for some of the predecessors? Oh, well, arguably. I don't know how comfortable Lloyd Blankfein would have felt in 2010, 2011 when he was facing those uh, yep. congressional inquisitions. That's yep, much point. harder than any palace intrigue that David Solomon has to deal with. I would argue his position, his standing, his quote-unquote vibe inside the firm right now is perhaps better than any time in the last 12 months. Okay. It feels like all the griping and the internal rifts mm-hmm. and everything that was going public with the firm has quietened down a bit. That doesn't mean that the path forward is going to be exceptionally clean and easy for David Solomon. You will still have to show performance and you mm-hmm. will still have to show that after a couple of years when revenue has been down because capital markets have been clogged up yep. because you've had misses with your real estate investments. As you get past that, you can now move towards actually delivering on your financial targets and that's important for Solomon. All right, Sri Natarajan, thanks so much for joining us. Short notice there, Bloomberg News on that Goldman Sachs pay. Uh, just fascinating. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Poonam Goyle, senior U.S. e-commerce and retail analyst. She joins us on Nike. Is it Nike or Nike? Do I have to say Nike? No. Nike. Go, okay, so we don't do that. We Where, don't are do you? Where are you? I don't know. I will go. I will I go. Do you say Adidas like, or D- Adidas? No, I, I know it's Adidas. a family name, but <laughs> yeah. but anyway, okay. So Nike, right, thank you, good. will slash about a two percent of its global workforce. That stock is down four percent. Now, typically, if we see a company get its house in order and cut costs, the stock can go up on that. Not in the case of Nike. Poonam, what's Nike's problem? I think the problem isn't just Nike's problem. We've seen job cuts across the board in retail and a 2% reduction, while it sounds daunting and that things are getting weak, we think things are weak, right? The top line environment for retail sales is a little murky. We expect them to be conservative in their guidance when they do report results coming up. But remember that 2% of their workforce compares to we had eBay identifying a 9% cut earlier this year. We had Rent the Runway with a 10% cut. We had Amazon, over 27,000 employees were cut in the last two years. So this job cut news is, you know, while it seems that, oh my gosh, things are getting materially worse, I think it's just part of creating efficiencies in retail today as a top line environment really is a little weaker than we think. So what's the story for Nike? I kind of feel like Nike's everywhere. I mean, how do you how do you move the needle? 
for a company like Nike? Yeah, so it's a $50 billion brand. It's the number one sportswear brand in the world. And the bulk of its brand is footwear, which has given it some protection. I think moving the needle on Nike is really just about getting the supply chain right and really getting consumer trends to pick up across the globe. It is a global brand. So you can't have one region doing well and the other not. We need China to get better. We need EMEA to get better. We need things to turn around in North America. It's collective. So we do need to see improvement in consumer spending patterns to really drive material improvement here. They're controlling what they can, which is costs, right? They had a $2 mm-hmm. billion dollar plan in place that they put in December, which will unfold over the next three years. But on the top line, we do need momentum in terms of consumer spending to increase. The one thing that I'd say that would help them um, this year is sporting events, right? So I think as we see more sporting events come back to life with the Summer World Cup in Paris this year, there is an opportunity to really create new product and innovation around that to drive demand up. But outside of that, you do need the broader macro to improve in all the regions that it participates in. So Nike, though, as you were mentioning, sort of other brands, is the least bad, right? That's why they're only cutting 2% versus more. Am Am I getting that roughly right? I mean, it's a much smaller cut than what some of the other brands have done, Mm -hmm. though I I wouldn't quantify as least or more because, you know, these cuts start and you don't know where they end. But we did see hiring ramp up in the pandemic to support digital orders from some of these online companies. So while their numbers seem bigger, they also probably hired more during the pandemic, which is just a reflection of things normalizing again. I see. What's the competitive landscape for Nike? Kind of just laid out for us. Yeah, so it is a larger sports for a brand, as you know. There is competition that is growing, whether it's through On, Hoka, Allbirds. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other more niche digitally native brands coming up the spectrum. Adidas is coming back. We have new management team there, and they're re-stepping and re-accelerating on the push for sports across the globe. So we think, you know, that gap that Nike had with Adidas had widened in the past four or five years, but that could narrow. That said, we do think Nike remains a very solid player in the activewear market, and they will continue to maintain their dominant push, especially in footwear. The one thing that I'd say that, you know, where there's probably more room for others to creep in um, to Nike would be on the apparel side. The apparel spectrum in activewear is open. Um, Lululemon, Allbirds, on even and adidas under armor puma you know they're all able to take share in that market as no one player really dominates it with a high margin like they do in footwear so what makes like a footwear apparel in sports like a nike or an adidas or puma what makes that not discretionary like what makes that the must-have if i have the extra five bucks i'm not going to buy the eggs i'm going to buy this because it's not there yet right and that's kind of the problem yeah, so I think footwear is something, it de- It depends. If you're a sports person, right, and you're playing sports, your basketball sneakers are going to wear out. Your soccer cleats will wear out. You will need to refresh and get a new pair. But it's not even about the sports. We learned through the pandemic that the wardrobe has changed. It's become more casual and probably more balanced today than it ever was before. So in that instance, you'll see people walking at conferences with active wear sneakers right that, that's become a normal now like you don't need those dress shoes so people are dressing more in comfortable wear and that's a catalyst yeah, for that's nike actually, and the that's other actually an going. issue for me the men in suits <laughs> with the uh the sneakers even even david weston who i have tremendous respect for 
I, he's, he sports that look. It looks, he does. It looks pretty solid, I have to say. But I'm like, David, I'm just not sure that's your brand. And he says, I can adapt. He, but like, I, uh, he would be the first one to say that he is not like a fashion icon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, let's put, let's put that out there for sure. It's, it's, it's solid. comfort. It's, it's definitely a comfort. I'm looking at these two guys here. They're not wearing sneakers, though, although John Tucker is wearing one of his shoes that aren't dressed. He's apparently two pairs. And this is the non-dress shoe, correct? No, it's a uh, sketcher. Uh, so that's a sneaker. Okay, so it's a sneaker. Okay. okay. But it's Friday. That's why. <laughs> it's Otherwise, casual. Paul would yell at me because he's apparently the fashion police. Exactly. Put him. Before before we let me go, <laughs> we got to ask about China. I, boy, I think about Nike is one of those names that's boy. It's a supplier. It's a you know they make stuff there. Plus, they sell about fifteen percent of the revenues to China. What are they saying about China? China's a little weaker right now. We've heard um, from our analysts in China that the economy is not as robust as we would have expected, you know, coming out of the pandemic and also coming out of just their zero tolerance policy for COVID. It is one of the biggest growth areas for not just Nike, but really for a lot of U.S. retailers. So we do need to see some acceleration in China. That said, I do think that you know, China is doing better for them today than it was during the pandemic. So there is some sign of hope, but we do need to see them stepping up the pedal on China. There is a lot of competition mm-hmm. coming into China from other U.S. brands. So it's once again an area where they don't own the space. They don't own the region in terms of sports where they are competing with other players as well. Should I be insulted? You guys didn't ask me about my shoes. We know way too much about your shoes. <laughs> you way know, you're much. scratching the surface, John Tucker. I hate Poonam. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Poonam Boyle, you. senior U.S. e-commerce and retail analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business App. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. We've been talking a this week about commercial real estate. We had that great piece out uh, from Bloomberg finally about talking about how some of that real estate loans were starting uh, to re-rate and understand what the discount was really going to be. So we wanted to get the view from someone in a C-suite at a very big bank. It's Huntington Bank Shares. Uh, it, it has a market cap of $40 plus billion, I think, if I just look. There we go. 18. My bad. Huh. $18 billion. But it's an $189 billion in assets. Uh, it's headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. Um, it serves uh, consumers, small and middle market businesses, corporations, municipalities, uh, and lots of organizations with many different things. Banking, payment, wealth management, risk management, and services. So they kind of do it all. And they're kind of in the sweet spot uh, of where their assets are, $189 billion worth. So let's get now to the CEO and Chairman, Steve Steinauer. He joins us now. Hey, Steve, it's great to chat with you. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you, Alex. And I hope your forecast of $40 billion is absolutely hey, right. I doubled market your market cap. cap, so you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. This is what we do here. Um, so, Steve, we've heard a lot about the commercial real estate risks. Michael Barr was just talking about that uh, from the Fed supervision, talking about they're really looking very closely at these loans. What is your exposure? How do you manage it as a CEO? Well, we, we manage it with limits. So, And we've had this discipline for 15 years. So our exposure uh, uh, is always constrained by how much we are willing to do in any given category, including commercial real estate. So for us, uh, uh, we've got less than 10% of our loan portfolio in commercial real estate. That compares to about 15% for average peers. And then we've tried to be very, very conservative with it. We, our, our reserves against, for loan losses against that portfolio is a little over 4%, 4.2%. Our peers are at 2%. 
Um, from what we can, what we see, we think we're in great shape uh, uh, at this point going and going forward. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Steve, describe the kind of the, the character of your commercial real estate portfolio. I'm assuming you don't have a lot of exposure here to Midtown Manhattan. Uh, who's your customers? What's a typical loan look like for you? Um, our, our customers are usually going to be somebody who's been at this business for, for decades and maybe intergenerationally. So uh, so a multi-generation family, um, a long, long uh, standing fund. Um, and we're very selective about who we do business with. That's part of why we think We'll come through this in great shape. Um, you know, if 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 customers uh, uh, who were with us uh, in in 2008-9 and performed um, uh, well during that period of time, then you know those are relationships we've looked to build over the last 14 years or so, and 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 have been again very disciplined on what we're looking for. So in addition to that, there's global cash flow, loan to value, mm -hmm. um, uh, guarantee support, thing, guarantor support, things like that. Hey, Steve, as other banks are coming to terms with their losses, would you be buying some of those loans from peers? No, we, we're not uh, uh, a bank that buys paper from other banks or or, or other, other sources. Um, we, we're a customer-oriented institution. So if now if one of our customers had a, a loan at another bank and that bank was unwilling to to go forward with them for any reason or ask them to to refinance that uh, we would expect they'd come to us and we'd we'd certainly look at that and and if possible we'd we'd make that loan we we will support our customers what what are your customers telling you these days are they are they taking down capital are they sitting tight what are you seeing from both your retail and your corporate customers well uh now moving outside of commercial real estate generally yep. our, our commercial customers had an okay to good year in 23, generally. There are some exceptions. And this year is starting to shape up uh, um, uh, better with more certainty and more confidence. Some of that is uh, induced by the Fed effectively capping rates, or what looks like to be capping rates, and reducing rates. So that's a better environment um, uh, versus an uncertain level of increasing interest rates. And uh, additionally, there's been so much benefit out of the various stimulus packages that have come through in the data the last in the fourth quarter and already this year that there's just more optimism that that's generally in place. The consumer is doing well on the whole. So, do you, is this an economy then that you think needs rate cuts, or is this an economy that needs normalization? What's your lens telling you? I think the forward market reset that just occurred this week, mm -hmm. going from six uh, cuts to three or four, is now in line with what we think might happen. I don't believe the Fed has to cut rates. I think just the, the fact that, that the outlook is not for increasing rates provides a level of certainty and confidence. I do believe, as inflation continues to adjust downward, that there will be rate cuts later in the year 
whether it's two, three, or four, anybody's guess. But uh, uh, but I think the market's now much more calibrated tightly to what's a, a higher probability outcome. Hey, Stephen, we had some of the uh, weakness in some of the uh, regional banks early last year and then uh, this year with New York Community Bank. What I think that brought to light for a lot of people is, boy, there are a lot of regional banks around the United <laughs> States, you know, some 4,000 of them. And I guess that just begs the question, you know, is that too many? So as you think about the regional banking space, do you think it's ripe for consolidation? Do you think it needs consolidation? And if so, how do you guys view that at Huntington Bank? Well, typically when we hear the term regional banks, it's usually banks 100 billion up to the GCIFI levels. And then there's the midsize and then there are the community banks. The 4,000 banks you referenced would be uh, a thousand, several thousand community banks, you know, 3,000 plus community banks. And and by that, they, they find, by that I mean they, do, they service a defined geographic area, typically not multi-state. Then you have sort of the mid-size that could be multi-state, and then 100 billion or more, you're going to be in multiple states. And um, and so well, you know, NYCB unfortunately uh, has a, a real estate concentration, a very high concentra yep. concentration. I think it's about 56, 58 percent of their total loan portfolio in commercial real estate. It's one of the higher levels, highest levels in the country. Um, and um, and you know there's a there's a softness in New York and they're concentrated in New York so uh, very unique characteristics I think well, what we saw from CBRE yesterday mm -hmm. saying they believe office uh, valuations have generally bottomed out it's a very encouraging sign but to that point a, another part of what happened to New York Community Bank was that they got into a different regulatory peer a tier and they had to put more money away because of the assets they bought bought from Signature. Um, what do you think? Like, has that happened to you? Are you, it, it, does that sort of change how you view growth in the company? Not at all. We're we're very much front-footed. We uh, we we grew loans last year and deposits, core deposits, and we expect to do that this year. We're investing in the businesses. We see this as a moment where where this uncertainty actually can be an advantage. We've got very strong liquidity, core deposits, capital, earnings. Our credit's been outstanding, and uh, and so we're investing. We're expanding. Uh, we've opened up. In the Carolinas, in the last quarter, uh, we've added uh, specialty banking business lines. There are a series of other actions that we've taken that that uh, will create more and more revenue for us. So we're in a growth dynamic. Hey, Stephen Contrarian. In, in terms of that growth plan, do acquisitions figure into that? Does are you guys interested in maybe growing via acquisitions? No, we're very focused on growing the core, and we think we have a lot of opportunities. We combined with a bank called TCF just uh, coming up on three years. We see a lot of opportunity still in that combination. And um, and then those investments I, I mentioned a moment ago, they're all just starting. And so in addition to the core growth we historically have had and, and will continue to have, we have these new revenue streams uh, that, that we've, we've already invested in. And before I let you go, can you rate the health of the consumer for us? 10 being amazingly awesome, zero being no one spending, it's all COVID? <laughs> I'd say we're somewhere around a seven plus uh, uh, percent. Now, you know, there's, the inflation has impacted um, a, a lower income uh, tier of our society, unfortunately, but there's still a lot of spending. And this January number, I think, will prove to be a blip on the screen after a fairly, after a fairly strong fourth quarter. 
Steve, so great to see you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. It's a super valuable conversation yep. to get a read from you, Steve Seinauer, uh, Chairman, President, and CEO of Huntington Bank. Okay, seven plus. Yeah. Seven plus. All right. That's not bad. I mean, yeah. and you think about it, I mean, the, the markets, you know, they're based in Columbus, Ohio, of the great state of Ohio, as Matt Miller always mixes say. Uh, and that part of the country, you know, as we've heard from others, um, you know, there's some innovation going on. There's some decent uh, economic growth there. Um, and so if you're a bank that serves that part of the world uh, with some good franchises, it sounds like it's a pretty good business. And I was just, you know, they have less than 10% of their portfolio in commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. So that sounds pretty good relative to peers. Right. And just highlights what we've been talking about sort of all week that like, yes, certain loans will blow up and be bad. Yep. It's just identifying them and then the timing of when that becomes bad. But yep. overall, it's a much different situation. Um, anyway, that was a fun conversation. Enjoyed that. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One of my favorite indicators, uh, NFIB, but also UMich, uh, yep. University of Michigan sentiment for February, the preliminary read came in a little, and I mean a little, uh, lighter than estimated, 79.6. Current conditions, 81.5, a little lighter, but still okay. Expectations coming in 78.4, that's better. And one-year inflation expectations tick up to 3%, five to 10-year inflation expectations tick up to 2.9%. This all means something because Fed Chair Jay Powell has quoted the expectation from UMich in terms of inflation as sometimes a real pivotal read for them in terms of what inflation is actually doing. And that's why we go to Joanne Chu, University of Michigan Surveys of Consumer Director, uh, who runs all of this wonderful data for us. Joanne, I, I got to say, I look at the numbers and I'm like, nah, okay, kind of like a nothing burger. What's the something burger? The main point to see is that, you know, we just followed two months of tremendous improvements in sentiment. We're about 30% higher than we were back in November. And, and I think there were questions on whether or not this was going to stick. And what we saw today um, is that indeed, we have solidified those gains for the last two months. Um, they weren't a fluke whatsoever. Uh, consumers are on an upper trajectory. Um, there isn't much room for improving after a 30% surge. So this doesn't come as too much as a, of a surprise, um, but it does solidify those gains. Yeah, that context certainly helps put the February numbers uh, into context. So Joanne, talk to us, just remind us kind of what are some of the main drivers of your uh, survey? Um, so the survey um, covers various aspects of the economy, um, both the personal finances as well as the macro economy, labor markets, as well as unemployment and business conditions. And the index itself focuses on business conditions and personal finances. Um, what, and what we were seeing both in February as well as last month is that consumers really are feeling considerably more confident that inflation has truly turned a corner and they are starting to internalize strong labor markets. Um, for much of last year, sentiment was quite low in in spite of uh, you know, strong labor markets. And now what we're seeing is that consumers are expecting robust growth in their incomes in the year ahead, and they are feeling much more um, confident about those labor markets as but, well. But row, then we got the CPI, then we got the <laughs> PPI. Um, what, are your, what, what, what are the respondents most sensitive to when it comes to the inflation outlook? And will the data this week kind of change it for your next read? I don't expect things to change too much for our next read because consumers are not watching the CPI, PPI prints. What they are 
um, incorporating are their experiences in the world around them. And, you know, as an example, the most recent CPI print, it was already reflected in the prices that people faced um, in, in or earlier in the month. Um, so, you know, we did see um, in our current, um, our current measurement of inflation expectations that the year ahead inflation expectations inched up from 2.9 to 3.0. And I think that's consistent with what consumers were, were noticing. So even though um, we are seeing um, in, uh, you know, inflation remaining a little bit elevated, um, consumers are not concerned at this time that it's gonna come roaring back. And at the same time, the long run inflation expectations, which is followed most closely by policymakers, including the Fed, that has not budged for three months. We've been at 2.9% um, for three months in a row. We've been between 29 and 3.1% for almost three years. Um, so that's been pretty stubborn and, um, and hasn't come down um, and, and still remains a little bit elevated pre-pandemic, but again, much lower um, than we were seeing with uh, current inflation. Joanne, the uh, the labor market remains, you know, pretty darn robust and pretty darn resilient here. Most people who want a job have a job. They're getting some reasonable wage increases, uh, certainly in many cases better than uh, the inflation rate. How does the labor market factor into your survey? So um, there was quite a bit of variation over the last year about who was seeing the large wage gains, um, whose wage gains were keeping up with inflation um, or exceeding inflation and who, whose were not. And I think it's taken several months um, of sustained strength in labor markets for that to really pass through to people's pocketbooks um, and through, through to their expectations for the future. Um, and, and so there is a growing share of consumers who expect their income gains to outstrip inflation or at least keep up with inflation in the year ahead. And that's certainly going to provide additional support for consumer spending um, as we're on this upswing in sentiment. How closely are we worried about gasoline prices? Like, I, I appreciate the idea that the PPI and John CPI, uh, well, yeah, um, <laughs> that that reflected. They've gone up lately, yes. significantly. Yeah. Yes, that's what I, I said. Uh, but well, so uh, <laughs> the CPI uh, was reflecting prices that they already felt like in the store, but gasoline prices have really moved up. And I'm just wondering what you sense the sensitivity is there. Consumers are perfectly aware that gas prices are very volatile and they're actually quite unique in that they're really the only prices that will go down as well as up. And it is true that consumers um, are going to see, have seen the increase in, in prices at the pump um, recently. Um, but concerns over gas prices are much lower than they have been in the past. Um, those for whom gas prices really bite, they definitely, they are mentioning it on the survey and they have lower levels of sentiment than, um, than for others. But the share of people for whom those gas prices are biting is, is shrinking over time. Um, and so this could affect sentiment um, going, going forward, but I do not expect a large, um, a large impact. What's, what's the biggest, um, I guess, concern of yours as, as you look through your survey data or the concern of your, the folks who do take the survey? I think the big thing to watch in the year ahead is the um, is the influence of the election. Um, we asked many questions on the survey about what people, what consumers expect in the year ahead and, and, and as well as the long term, five to 10 years ahead. And a growing share of consumers are telling us, well, it really depends on what's going to happen with the election. And of course, we're very early in election season. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Um, <laughs> And, and so as that uncertainty starts to unwind, the picture could look very different depending on how people think 
um, the projected um, results of the election will end up for the economy. Well, but interesting point, because uh, normally, Joanne, do you do a Democrat versus Republican on how they feel? Like, is that sentiment gap still really there? Yes, it's it's been there. Um, it's been there for the last eight years. And and we uh, and that's when we started um that's when we really started to measure um, political party affiliation on a monthly basis. But we used to do it a few times per administration. And we've always seen that consumers who belong to the political party that's in the White House tend to have higher levels of sentiment than people whose party is not in the White House. So that's no different right now. But what's really interesting is that even though you know Republicans um, have much lower levels of sentiment than then Democrats and independents are right in the middle. All three political groups saw tremendous gains in sentiment over the last three months. So the fact that sentiment has you know, made this 30% surge um, since November, that's not attributable to just one party or the other. That's really nationwide. Really interesting. Hey, Joanne, thanks a lot. We always love the instant analysis. Uh, love this data point. Thank you. We will see you uh, at the next read. Joanne Shu joining us, University of Michigan Surveys of Consumer uh, Direct. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One of those uh, economic data points today where housing starts uh, came in uh, minus 14.8% month to month. The consensus was for flat, so coming in uh, kind of higher than expected here. So maybe, you know, the fact that we're not getting mortgage rates coming down as fast as maybe some people would like, maybe that's having an impact on the market. Let's check in with Drew Redding. Uh, he's with Bloomberg Intelligence. He covers all the home building stocks here. Hey, Drew, talk to us about kind of your reaction to this housing start number and kind of what's happening out there in your world of building and building houses. Sure. So as you mentioned, it was a pretty big headline miss, um, down 14.8% from last month. A couple of things to point out in this release. First, there's a pretty pretty big revision um, to the December numbers. So that's part of it. The second thing you have to, to consider is that multifamily drove the biggest part of this decline. So single family housing starts were only down about four and a half percent. Multifamily was down somewhere around 36 percent. Um, and then at the same time, you know, we do have this ongoing rate volatility. So it does likely reflect some caution by the builders. But you know, when we look at this release monthly, the, the data point that we tend to focus more on is the building permit number. They tend to be more consistent. Um, you know, and in that regard, we actually saw a 2% increase from last month, and they're up more than 40% from last year. So the trajectory for single family housing is still positive. And this is kind of the same dynamic that we expect to play out through 2024 is more strength in the single family versus the multifamily side. I thought the permits were down by one and a half percent. Am I what am I missing? So we're we're looking at the single family piece. Yeah. Oh, I see. And then that was better. So what do permits and starts respond most to? Like, is it time of year? Is it weather? Is it rates? What's the trigger for these guys? 
Yeah, so we tend to prefer permits because generally if a builder is going to pull a permit, they have the intention to break ground on a house. Um, when you're talking about starts, there's always a lot more volatility in these numbers. You know, you could have on any given month, maybe your access to labor wasn't good. Maybe it's weather, um, you know, some of the trades. So it tends to be a lot lumpier, which is why we prefer to look at permits. So, Drew, I mean, is it still a bullish call for home building stocks here? Because um, I, I, I guess the narrative is nobody's selling their existing homes. So if people want to buy, them. get a home, they got to go get a new one. Is that still kind of the long-term narrative here? Yeah, I think that theme is, is still in place for 2024. Like you mentioned, resale supply still very low. Builders are actually increasing their start. So when we look out to next year, we think that the broader new construction market is up in the mid-single digit range. But we think that the larger publicly traded home builders could be up 10%. Um, part of the reason is because they have the access to land, they have the access to labor, they're well capitalized. And you contrast that with their their smaller private peers who typically rely on regional bank financing um, to grow their business. So with the cost of their capital increasing and the availability of that capital increasing, it's harder for them to grow. Um, so that's why we think the advantage continues to rest with the large builders. So. Are, are those the builders that were also offering like discounts or sort of adding in some extra juice for first time home buyers or home buyers into their property so they could get them to sell? Are those are, are these those buyers and do they stop that stuff? Yeah, so a majority of the home builders are still offering incentives. Um, most buyers will take a financing incentives and you typically think of a rate buy down. Um, and that's the builders have had great success in pulling that lever to get they get buyers through the door and it's made the monthly payments on a new home increasingly comparable to what you would find in this existing home market, which isn't something that you've seen historically. Mm. Now, one of the, the themes that investors are looking out into 2024 is if rates pull back this year, can builders kind of take their foot off the gas pedal from an incentive perspective? Um, you know, and it, it was starting to happen, but we've had a we've had a hot CPI print. We had a, a hot PPI print today. And now we're seeing the 10-year the up about 150 basis points. So some of the progress that we've made in mortgage rates has kind of unwound, and we're back up above 7% now. So that's something that we're going to be watching. I mean, the, the trade on the builders has really focused around what's happening with rates, and at least in the near time, that's going to continue to be the story. Pushing your fi refinancing out, Pushing Paul, my refinancing by out. By month, by exactly. month, by month. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Drew, along that front on the mortgage front, as you talk to people in the industry, you know, real estate agents, um, is there a rate out there that they think will kind of get people start moving on this existing inventory of real estate? Like if rates get below six or get, you know, closer to five, I mean, is there a clearing rate, do you think? Yeah, good question. And, you know, what we found and what we've heard from the people we've talked to is it seems like five and a half percent is kind of that magic number. So we're at about Right now, this morning, about 7% with the 10-year rise, we're probably going to be above that in the in the coming days. Um, so the, the cost of builders having having to buy down that rate to get to that 55 6% rate is going to cost a little bit more. But we do think that if they can get there, it can, it'll continue to stoke some demand. I was talking to a first home buyer. Um, someone's trying to like buy a first house, just got married, blah, blah, blah. And, and the real estate agent was being like, it's okay, buy it now and then just refinance. Like, no, you're going to refinance it. And it was like, but guys, like, we don't know when that's going to look like. And then, I mean, it was like really trying to bully this guy. Well, uh, I got bullied that way. You did? Yes, totally. But I like, 
on New Jersey Shore, a state comes on the market, you got to no. pounce. Yeah. You know, you, you know John Wait, Paul knows. got bullied? Yeah. All right. I don't you believe it. that? I don't know. Forget it. I, I think on. he willingly knew that. But when you're a first-time home buyer, that's a totally different thing. Um, hey, Drew, wh- what's priced into these stocks? We're getting toll, I think. Toll Brothers next week. What are you looking for? Yeah, so basically what we want to hear is that demand trends to begin the year have improved um, when rates are at 8%. So so let me step back. The broader theme that we've heard through earnings so far is relative weakness towards the end of the fourth quarter with modest improvements in January and into February. So that's what we want to hear from Toll Brothers is that the improvement in demand as, as rates have come off from 8%, we want to see that that persisted into February. And another thing, Drew, are the home builders – are they meeting what most people tell you is the biggest need out there, which is entry-level homes? Or are they just building the high-margin McMansion Luxury. stuff? Yeah, so there, there has been a decided shift in the industry over the last couple of years to get down to lower price points where a lot of the demand is, a lot of the demographic demand going forward will be. And builders have had extreme success. I mean, some of the nam- names that stand out are D.R. Horton, um, Lennar is very focused on price. They're willing to meet the market. Ameritage Homes, who has completely shifted their business from one that was heavy in the move-up side of things and now builds almost exclusively at the entry level. Um, so there has been an ongoing shift over the last couple of years. We think that's going to continue, not only because you know that's where the demand is, but it's another way to, to kind of help solve that affordability puzzle that buyers are facing right now. Well, especially when there, how many people have mortgages under three or under four? They're just never going to move like me. Okay, you yeah, don't so, have any mortgage, Tucker. That doesn't count. You paid it off. No, I didn't. You didn't. <laughs> I'm not going to pay it off because it's what three and a quarter or something. Like that. Yeah, whatever. I got two point seven five. Beat that. Oh, it's, it's well, well over fifty percent of the market. Yeah. That's so, like it. that inventory is not coming back. Like that hurdle is going to be super high. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why we've seen um, resale inventories be so low. And I do think, you know, as you start to get, I do think that buyers' and sellers' perceptions have changed. I mean, there's an adjustment period. It's not just that, you know, people are never going to move again. There's certain reasons why you have to move. But I think if rates start to get below 6% um, in that 6% range, I do think it'll start to unlock some of those sellers. And what you also have to remember is, we're, that that mortgage rate lock-in effect that we've talked about is gradually starting to loosen because you've had a lot of people already over the last you know year and a half to two years transact at higher rates. So as rates have fallen below peak levels, that does loosen things up a little bit All by right. itself. All right, great stuff, Drew. Thanks so much for joining us, Drew Redding. He's a home builder analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us uh, via Zoom from the uh, HQ of Bloomberg Intelligence down in Princeton, New Jersey. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.